what does the authority of Jesus mean for our relationships? What does it look like to declare Jesus is Lord in my family? Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Let me pray that God would change us, transform us by his word. Father, we we hear these commands and we thank you that you are a God who who doesn't merely give us a, a distant and esoteric knowledge, but that you meet us in our relationships. You have commands for how the gospel will change the way we treat one another. And so, Father, I pray that as we listen to your word, you would expose our sin. But Lord, don't leave us in sin. Point us to the grace that is, that is found in Jesus Christ. For those who have, who have not acknowledged Jesus to be Savior, I pray that they would find faith today, that they would trust in Jesus. Lord, we come giving you praise in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a $9 an hour job that requires mopping floors, dragging the trash out to the dumpster, and stacking the commercial dishwasher. But it's Mary's dream job. Mary Daniel visited her husband Steve every day at his Florida Memory Care Center until they stopped allowing visitors in March because of the coronavirus. The news account this summer caught my attention. There are so many stories of sadness, of separation, of isolation during the time of COVID. Perhaps you're joining us online because of the required isolation for you or one you care for. Or maybe you know the struggle of being separated from family. For 114 days, Mary was kept apart from her husband. She tried window visits. They tried FaceTime. But because of Steve's Alzheimer's, these attempts to see each other only caused frustration and anxiety for him. So when the facility offered a part-time job for a dishwasher, Mary jumped at the opportunity. She told them, I am going to be the best dishwasher you've ever had because I need this job. I need to be with, with my husband. Because of the background checks required for the job, because of the frequent testing required for her to be in the facility, she, when she finished her shift, was allowed then, with mask on, to go visit her husband. After her first shift, Mary walks into Steve's room and she worries. I'm doing better than I did in the first service. Um, yesterday, as a family, we gathered, maybe too soon for me to have used an illustration related to Alzheimer's. Yesterday, we as a family gathered with my dad because it had been six months 
since my mother's death. But when Mary's first shift was over, she enters Steve's room, she worries, will he even remember me? And at the sight of her, her husband begins to cry. He calls out her name. He runs to her and wraps his arms around her. This is a love worth celebrating. Her service, a picture of love. Dragging trash to a dumpster, a picture of her love. Scrubbing dishes in a commercial kitchen, a job for which she is far overqualified for. But it's a picture of her love. Paul shows the Colossian church the power of serving one another in love. And yet, when we read the commands of Colossians 3, we stumble over words like submit and obey. We struggle to see service as a picture of love. Paul wants Christians to live out our lives, to live out our relationships in submission to the Lordship of Christ. The, the command is given in this passage that we are to serve the Lord Christ. We can submit and serve, we can obey, because we submit ourselves to the authority of King Jesus. The commands are clear. In verse 18, we read that wives are to submit to their husbands. Verse 20, children, you must obey your parents in everything. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Submit, obey. These words sound to us like they are sexist. Or even the, the language of speaking to slaves might, might sound to us as like it's racist. It feels like it, that maybe Paul is capitulating to the cultural standards of the Greco-Roman world, that he's, he's just giving these commands because, well, that's just the way everyone acts. But perhaps Paul is, is actually challenging the standards of the world in which he was writing. And also that might mean that, that Paul would challenge our cultural expectations. Our expectation that I should never be placed in a position where I would be expected to submit or obey anyone where freedom, my personal autonomy, is, is absolutely sacrosanct, and, and I can never be in a place where I would be expected to submit or obey. See, maybe our, our, our hesitation at these kinds of commands, to submit, to obey, says not what's really true, but just the, the attitudes of our own hearts. Because Paul is challenging us, and he's challenging his, his readers, the, the first hearers of this. They, they culturally, yes, lived in a world where, where the father, the, the paterfamilias, had a lot of power, the head of the household. But, but notice, that, and, 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 and we, might, we might miss this, Paul speaks directly to wives, children, and slaves. He speaks to them with commands from God as if, they are genuine participants in the life and ministry of the church. As if they are morally responsible for their actions and behavior. See, in the ancient world, it didn't matter. Obedience, submission was just expected, it was demanded. And if you didn't want to get in line, we would force you to get in line. But, but Paul speaks to children, even little children. I mean, these are children still under the authority, the, living under the, the household of their parents. Children, obey your parents in everything. So Paul, even in inviting, even in placing the command, a command which, which we're hesitant to hear, but even in giving the command, 
is, is breaking with cultural expectations. Because women, children, slaves are important members of the congregation. And that language of submission, to, to submit is, is, is not to be a, a second-class citizen or, or to have less value or significance. To submit is to recognize the God-given order in relationships. But, but submission is always done in submission, our ultimate submission, to God himself. See, in the ancient world, husbands, fathers had unlimited power, and yet Paul, in the commands he gives to fathers, the commands he gives to husbands, the commands he gives to masters, limits their power. This is countercultural. The, the command that, that sounds so familiar to us as Christians, that husbands must love their wives, that wasn't the way you would have talked to husbands in the ancient world. Who cares about love? What's love got to do with this? Nothing. Nothing at all. This is a, a family household that is run on order and submission, and so you do what I tell you because I told you to do it. And yet Paul's expectation here is that husbands must love their wives. The ancient commands would have said, bring order and control. But here the command is to love. And, and we can think of the, the parallel passage in Ephesians, a, a passage that, that makes this explicit. The command to love is rooted in the command of God's love for us. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, the command is given, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The love that we show to one another is a love that's, reflected, that's reflective of the love of God. And that's clear even here in Colossians, where the command is, is much shorter than the command given in Ephesians. Because the only other time the, the verb for love, the, the word love, the noun is used multiple times in the letter. But the only other time it's used as a verb was, was in what we read last week, back in chapter 3, verse 12. It's used as a, a participle, the, the verb saying, look at, look at chapter 3, verse 12 of Colossians. That we are, we are called, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That, that is the same verb that's, that's given then to husbands. Husbands, you must love your wives. Just as you have been loved by God, you are to show love to one another. See, submission and obedience, though, are, are done in, a, in the midst of a loving relationship. And so we, and this is important that you hear this. If you are being called to submit in an unloving and, and, and tragic way, that is not the, the biblical command. Because tragically, these kinds of words of submission and obedience have been used to justify abuse in the history of the church. And so, so if you wonder, am, am I in a, is, is this safe? Am I in a loving relationship? If, if you're unsure, if you feel like you need help, then come and speak with a pastor. Speak with a, with a Christian woman here in the church. There are, there are women who would walk alongside you to help you find protection. Because submission is never, is never an excuse for abuse. Because, because notice, the relationship should be submission to a husband who loves you. Obedience for children is, is to parents who are protecting you, not to discourage or embitter children. And yet, not only do we worry about, about these passages, these commands, these verbs, submission, being sexist, we, we worry that the, the command might be to slaves, racist. That slaves being told to obey their earthly masters, Paul is ignoring the inherent racism in slavery. And, and that's partly because our experience as Americans, as 21st century Americans, looking back at American history, racism for our history has been inherently racist and has racist repercussions even today. 
But in the ancient world, you, you were not made a slave based on what you looked like. You were not made a slave based on your ethnicity. You weren't kidnapped and sold into slavery. It, it, was, it was much more frequently the result of either war or an economic position. And slavery in the ancient world wasn't expected, in the, in the Greco-Roman world to which Paul is writing, wasn't expected to be a lifetime thing. It was something that you could buy yourself out of. It wasn't expected that your children and grandchildren would, of course, be slaves because you were a slave. And so there's a radical difference. And, and yes, there, there are ways that Paul, though, is challenging slavery here. And he would certainly, if he were standing and looking at the American story, he would certainly condemn slavery in America as racist and evil and wrong. But the reason that he gives commands here is because within, this, within these family relationships, and these are relationships that, that, that it's not merely employer to employee, it, it's here in the household. The, the command is given to slaves to obey. But, but notice that the command is that they are to obey their earthly masters. And that masters themselves, chapter 4, verse 1, have another master to whom they too must give an account. And the command given to masters is that they must provide their slaves with what is right and fair. They must reflect the heart of God in their relationships with one another. Justice and righteousness. And, and if we continue reading, and we'll do this in the coming weeks, if we continue reading, we'd be introduced in chapter 4, verse 9, to a man named Onesimus. He's coming with this letter. He may, maybe he's the one, actually, who read this letter out loud to the congregation the first time that they heard it. But Onesimus, we, we will learn in the book of Philemon, which is a short little book that probably came along at the same time here. It, it, Onesimus is a slave. His master is named Philemon, and Philemon is one of those books that's so hard to find because it's, oh, it's, there it was. It was half a page. Uh, but but in, this, in this letter, we're, we're told that Onesimus is described in relational terms. He is a son of the Apostle Paul. Not a biological son, not an adopted son, a spiritual son of Paul. He's one who deserves to hear the, the, the teaching of the Lord. And when Paul challenges Philemon, he says, you must receive him as a brother. Not as a slave. Your primary relationship is not as master to slave, but as brothers in Christ. In, in Philemon verse 16, that he must be treated as a dear brother a brother in the Lord. See, the relationships of slaves to masters, Paul is saying, are, are temporary. Verse 22, Paul, I mean, it's as if Paul can't help but insert the adjective earthly there. Verse 22, back in Colossians chapter 3, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything. You have a master in heaven. He is ultimate. This relationship in which you're in is temporary because you could buy yourself perhaps out of this, but, but it will certainly end in this life. And these slaves then are given the, an inheritance from the Lord. Legally in this life they can't inherit anything, but, but in God's kingdom they receive the inheritance of sons and daughters, an eternal inheritance, so a welcome in heaven. And, and even the, the warning in verse 25, a warning which seems to be warning masters as well as slaves, in verse 25. It, it, it's a warning that should be an encouragement then to a slave. Verse 25 says, anyone who does wrong will be pay, repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. So if you're in a situation where you're not being treated as a brother, where you're not being welcomed in love, then know that God sees what has been done, 
and that God will repay in judgment all that has gone wrong. And so, the, the relationships that we have are to be lived in submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. And you heard it when I read it, how many times that title of Lord is applied to Jesus. It's the name of God in the Old Testament, that he is Yahweh. It's, it's then that designation given to Jesus Christ in the New Testament to show us that both he is, he is the divine Son of God in our midst, but he has absolute power and authority and sovereignty. In, in these nine verses, seven times we're reminded that Jesus is Lord. Look at verse 18. Wives are, are asked to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, children obey, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, slaves obey, not only when, the, when, when, when they're being watched, but look at the end of the verse 22, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Verse 23, all of our work would be, be done as if we're working for the Lord, not for men. Verse 24, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. It, Paul says it directly. Your life is lived in submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. And then chapter 4, verse 1 uses that same word, Lord, but translate it for us, Master. That, that we all have a Master in heaven. It's the same word that was used as Lord throughout the passage, and, and rightly, I think, translated as Master, so that we see Paul's play on words. Masters? speaking to the people in the congregation, masters, you think you're in control? Remember, you have to bring justice and, and righteousness because you have a master in heaven. All of life is lived under the lordship of Christ. Our relationships are meant to reflect the lordship of Christ. We can submit because we submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. And in verse 24, where it's said very directly, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. It, it's, it, I mean, we could translate that phrase because that, that you are serving has this, the force of an imperative, the force of a command. Serve the Lord Christ. And in Greek, the, the emphasis is placed on the Lord Christ. It's, it's placed first in the sentence, and that reads naturally in Greek. I mean, if we translate it that way in English, then we sound like you're, you're lost in the Star Wars universe. The Lord Christ you serve. Um, but, but, it's, but it's a direct command giving emphasis to Jesus Christ as Lord serve the Lord Christ. And that's an unusual construction because normally if I say the Lord, you would expect me to say Jesus Christ. And, and it's, it's only used here and, and once in Romans, the, the, just these titles given to Jesus. He is Lord, he is Christ. He is the King, the anointed King, the Messiah, the Christ. He is the Lord with absolute authority. It, it's a, a dual emphasis. He is the Lord King. He is the sovereign King. He is Lord Christ. And so all of our lives are meant to be lived under the Lordship of Christ. That's what we read back last week in, in verse 17 of Colossians 3, that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it all under the authority of Jesus. Do it all under the, the reign of Jesus as Lord, whatever you do. And that's what, what Paul is repeating then in our, our passage. In your family relationships, serve the Lord Christ. But then it forces us to, to wonder, well, what kind of master is he? Is he one who is worthy of our service? Is he one who will be harsh and cruel? Well, the Colossians, they know what kind of master he is. 
You and I know what kind of master it is. We repeated this in our, in our liturgy for today's service, but we've heard it. Back in, in chapter 1, verse 15, and maybe you can just flip the page there or, or, or scroll up on your screen. In Colossians 1:15, we find out what kind of king Jesus is. Verse 15 of Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. What kind of king is he? The king of all, with absolute power and authority. But he's not merely a distant king, he is a king who has come near. He's not merely a king with power, he is a king of love. Because he is the firstborn from among the dead, verse 18 tells us in Colossians 1. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is the king who has been raised from the dead. He's the king who gave his life for us. Look at at verses 19 and 20 of Colossians 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What kind of king is he? He's the king who gave his life for you. Who took your place on the cross that through his death, through his shed blood, you might find forgiveness of sins. This is the king, the master whom you serve. See, we can submit to one another. Wives can submit to husbands because we serve a savior who served us by giving his life. We can obey because we serve a Savior who obeyed his Father's will by going to the cross. We can love one another because we have a God who has proven his love for us, a Savior who loved us enough to reconcile us to his Father in heaven. In loving relationships, we are called to serve each other. Wives, submit to your husbands. It it, it doesn't say women submit to men. It says wives submit to your husbands. There is no inferiority in the command. It is, a, it is a command to show forth the loving relationship that God has established in the home because husbands love your wives. He is the one, the husband is the one who is to show love and care for his wife. Children are, are called to obey because parents are the ones. And, and that word in verse 21, fathers, could be translated as parents because we read elsewhere in the New Testament that we speak of the, the, the fathers of Moses speaking obviously of his parents who protected him at birth. But, but parents, we, we are meant to love and care for our children. Not embitter them, not discourage them, but in the ancient world, who would have cared? They'll obey because they're told to obey. But in the Christian home, they obey because they are cared for and encouraged and strengthened. And so this might mean for some of us that we need to go in our relationships and ask for forgiveness. You might think, this hasn't described my life at all. And you might think, maybe it's, maybe it's too late. My, my kids are grown. I've, I, I've, I've done too much wrong. Well, forgiveness is powerful. Go and admit your failures. Ask for forgiveness. Strengthen that relationship now. And when we think of what, it, what the, the commands given to, to slaves, to masters, It's a reminder to us that whatever we do, even in our vocations, in the jobs that we serve, we are to do it working for the Lord. And so kids, when you're studying for that test and you wonder, I don't even know why I need to know this. Like, study 
as if you're studying to honor Christ. Parents, in the, in the middle of the night when you have a little one and you think, I'm exhausted, I can't go on, this child won't stop screaming, love this child in your arms as if you're loving Christ. In the menial tasks you're given at work, in the toil of, of I don't know why I'm, why I'm working to accomplish this, work as if you're serving the Lord. Work at it with all of your heart. Use the relationships that you have to serve Christ. Use your current power and position for the kingdom of God. The command is, is clear to us, serve the Lord Christ. The most important person in the history of modern missions might be a woman whose name isn't familiar to us. Historians Sylvia Fay and Betty Wood describe the rise of Christianity among black men and women in the American South and in the West Indies. They begin with what they call perhaps the defining moment in African-American history. I mean, they're not talking about just a defining moment. They're saying we think this might be the defining moment in the, in the history of, of the African-American church because it creates a community of hope, a community of faith that provided Afro-Atlantic peoples with an ideology of resistance and hope. They say that on the Caribbean island of St. Thomas in the 1700s, one of the earliest African Protestant churches was founded. Founded by a free, young, black woman, Rebecca Proton. Rebecca was born an enslaved woman, kidnapped from her home. She was born in Antigua and then taken to St. Thomas. She gained her freedom from slavery, and an historian tells us she wanted to use her freedom to bring others to Jesus. And with training from a missionary, then she became a missionary herself, converting, the, the estimates are, hundreds, if not thousands of people to faith in Christ through her, through her ministry. Another missionary describes her, her ministry to, to other enslaved people. Rebecca has done the work of her Savior by teaching black women and speaking about that which the Holy Spirit himself has shown her. He says, I have found nothing in her other than a love of God, and of his servants. Rebecca took her message directly to the people. Another biography describes her toil, daily along rugged roads through the hills in the sultry evenings after the slaves had returned from the fields. She was determined to take what she regarded as the Bible's liberating grace to people of African descent. The, the, the story continues. Her travels took her to slave quarters deep in the island's plantation heartland, where she proclaimed salvation to domestic servants, cane boilers, weavers, and cotton pickers, whose bodies and spirits were strip-mined every day by slavery. Rebecca Pratton's missionary work took her to Europe and then to Africa, where she founded a missions school. Her biographer writes, much that we associate with the black church in subsequent centuries the anchor of community life, advocate for social justice, midwife to spirituals and gospel music, in some measure derives from these early origins. It derives from the work of Rebecca Proton. And though her name is almost forgotten today, Rebecca Proton used her freedom to serve others. The command is given to us wives, husbands, children, parents, Slaves and masters, we are all servants of the King. 
The Lord Christ gave his life for us. And so use your life to serve him. Serve the Lord Christ. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, give us hope in this gospel message that we are your servants. You are our kind and gracious master, the one who gave his life for us. Our Father in heaven, we we pray that you would transform us to follow after Christ, that our hearts would be set free from sin, that by admission of our sins we would come and find forgiveness. Lord, we pray that you would apply the truth of Jesus Christ to our hearts, that you would use us as servants, as those willing to submit, willing to obey, willing to love and to serve, because we serve you, our gracious Master. Our Lord Jesus, we come to you, thanking you for the work that you have done on our behalf. Spirit in heaven, we come asking you to to change our hearts now. We give you our lives as we pray in the name of the Lord Christ, Jesus our Savior. Amen.